0: Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, specifically verses 1 through 5. We begin a new series through the fall in the book of Philippians. Why Philippians? We've got 66 books we could choose from, 27 in the New Testament. There are two themes that I think are timely for us that we're going to hear Again and again, as we hear the word of the Lord through Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi, you can't read this book without hearing the unity of the body of Christ. You can't read this book without hearing the joy that is found in Christ. We live in a cultural moment that we can all agree upon maybe, I think we can agree upon that it is a divisive time. It is a divisive time outside of the church, it is a divisive time in the church. You can find much. To divide, much to disagree about. And we need to be reminded in this cultural moment that there is unity that is found in the name of Jesus. We need to be reminded because there's much that that seeks to, to bring about discord and seeks to rob us of joy. We need to be reminded in this moment that there is joy that is found in Christ, no matter our circumstances. That there's much that threatens to rob us of joy, to rob us of peace. But in Christ, there is joy because he is with you no matter your circumstances. Paul's going to come back to these two themes again and again and again. And in a cultural moment where the stream is pushing this direction, I want to get in the sturdiest boat. And I want to paddle upstream against this cultural stream and cultural current. I know no sturdier boat to put us all in than Paul's words to the church at Philippi. Uh, it's a personal book for me. Uh, everybody has favorite books of the Bible. That has a lot of different ways that you could sort of deem that. But for me, I found a love for the Word of God through the book of Philippians. I think when I was about 14 or so, if somebody would have asked me what it meant that the Bible was inspired, I had it in my mind that it was just a notch above Homer's Odyssey or Shakespeare's Hamlet, that there's something that was classic about it. But my youth minister, when I was a ninth grader, tenth grader, he challenged me to memorize Scripture. I said, "Where do you want me to start, Harvey?" Uh, I think in John 3:16, something fairly familiar. He said, "The book of Philippians. What verse do you mean? The entire thing." Now I can't quote to you the whole book of Philippians, but for that summer, it was so formative for me. Going to his office and us reciting these verses it was something about the very word of god coming into me in that moment and and i was convinced i was convinced that i could hear the voice of god through this letter written almost 2000 years ago and it's not surprising that he would encourage me to memorize this book there there's so many memorable memorizable passages of scripture that you're going to find in the book of philippians our choir already beautifully has sung the very words of these opening uh, salutation and greetings of Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that we're confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. We could uh, talk about Philippians 1, verse 21, uh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 3, 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward to what is ahead. Or Philippians 4, 13, what, what many athletes have, have, have hold, held on to in the middle of, of the fields. So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We could add another and another and another and another of these memorable passages that just stand out as passages of scripture that have walked with many of us that are in this sanctuary. Now what I want us to do this morning is to, is to answer a couple of, of introductory questions, like who, what, where kind of questions. When you look at a book of the Bible, it's helpful for us to to get a level playing field of who is writing this and to whom are they writing this to. What are the historical circumstances of this? And those kinds of introductory sermons can feel far removed, sort of like we're pursuing historical minutia. But I want you to see that when we answer these questions of who and what and where, they're powerful truths powerful truths of God's Word that intersect your life and they intersect my life. By by us asking and answering who wrote the book of Philippians, you begin to see in God's Word the very power of the gospel to change lives. Don't just take it. Don't just take my word for it. Hear the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 reads, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. What a beautiful song that our choir led us in earlier in worship. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because, verse 5, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Who wrote this letter to the church at Philippi? While well, answering that question, we, we see the power of the gospel to change our lives. We Maybe it's third grade, maybe second grade, maybe fourth grade, uh, someone's going to, in elementary school, teach you how to write a thank you letter. You're going to write a formal letter. You're going to write a letter to your friends, and you're going to uh, have the designee of the letter, dear, fill in the blank, and then you're going to have at the very end of the letter your friend or sincerely, and you're going to write your name in that Greco-Roman world, it was flipped in the opposite way. So the individuals who wrote a letter, the individual who wrote a letter, and we have all types of Greek and Roman letters outside of the Bible that still stand with us. And we can learn from what we discover is this, the author of the letter is going to be at the very outset of the letter. So we have. Paul and Timothy it 's easy for us to just skip over this real quickly and, and not bask in what is so unique about who is writing this letter. when you think about Paul for a second, when I mean, we can say without exaggeration that he 's the greatest missionary of the early Christian church, he is the greatest theologian of the Christian church. And we can also say he's the, he is the greatest influence in the composition of the very New Testament that we have. Almost half of the New Testament books, 13 out of 27, bear his name, the Apostle Paul. Now, what's surprising about that is is that before Paul is this theologian, before Paul is this missionary, before the, Paul is this author of the New Testament, he is the greatest persecutor of the early church we we meet not paul in the book of acts first but we meet saul who was paul saul was was we have a little biographical sketch if you flip to philippians chapter 3 verses 3 through 6 we see that paul was an israelite he's from the tribe of benjamin he's a pharisee of pharisees he is zealous but you know what he was zealous for the proclamation of the gospel no he wanted to stomp it out the most faithful way that he knew before his conversion to follow God was to jail Christians and even to see Christians killed. He was a part of the very group that sat and watched Stephen's stoning. This is how we're introduced to the Apostle Paul, this great persecutor of the church. And there's a temptation for us to forget to forget the wonderful truth that the, the gospel actually changes people's lives. That there is a power. Uh, You can imagine that early church very suspicious. Of this guy who once was Saul coming into the church at Jerusalem and saying, Hey, let me tell you about what happened on the Damascus Road. Let me tell you how I was going to persecute Christians, and God met me through a vision of his son Jesus and literally knocked me off of my high horse. And I was going to persecute Christians, and now I'm coming to be a proclaimer of the risen Lord and Savior. And you can imagine them saying, Whoa, is this a mole? Was this some suspicious plot to infiltrate the church? And so it took a little while for them to to even see the power of the gospel to change this one who was Saul who now will become Paul. And for us too, we need to be reminded, never forget that there is not one who is too far off the grid of God's grace. There's a temptation for us to, to write people off. There's a temptation for us. Maybe you have a friend or a family member who is sort of militant in opposition to your Christian faith. It likes to poke at you at work about what you do on Sunday mornings when you gather together to worship in his or her mind this fairy tale of a God. And there's a part of us at times with family members who have run away from God's grace so long and so far, there's a time for us to think they're just too, quote-unquote, far gone. But Saul, who becomes Paul, is this wonderful reminder of the power of the gospel to change the hardest of hearts, to be able to change the lives that are so far in a foreign country doing their own thing, but God captures them through his grace. If you go outside of Bedford, England, there's a a small marketplace village there of, of the name of Olney, England. If you go to a cathedral that is there in this sort of nondescript little marketplace town, you could go to the back of their cemetery and you can read this tombstone that is inscribed with, with this granite inscription that reads John Newton, pastor, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich. Mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You may not remember his name, but all of us know the song that he wrote as a testimony of his life, Amazing Grace. It was true for John Newton, and it's true for the Apostle Paul, and do you know it's true for your dad or your mom? Your son or your daughter, your friend, your co worker who's running from the grace of Jesus Christ, who's putting up arms saying, No, 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 not for me. Don't lose heart that the grace of God continues to work and he continues to call even that person like Saul, a persecutor, and changes him into a proclaimer of the gospel. But it's not just Paul. That we see as the designee of who wrote this uh, book here. But we also see Paul and, do you see it? Timothy. It's only going to be in five other letters. This would be six that we have Paul and Timothy as what we would think as co-authors. It doesn't seem as if they're co-authors, though. It seems as if the the book of Philippians is going to be the thought of the apostle Paul. But what we can discover by Paul and Timothy being listed here as the authors is most likely Timothy serves as a secretary to Paul. It is most likely, when you see the orality of the letter here, there are going to be times where Paul picks up a stream of thought, he puts it down, chases a rabbit, comes back to his original thought. There's repetition again and again in the book of Philippians. And all of this is an indication of orality. All of this is an indication of somebody talking out loud through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down by Timothy, that gives us the book of Philippians. Now, who was Timothy? Timothy. Well, if you could find someone that was sort of on the furthest example that is contrary to Paul's testimony, you would come to someone like Timothy. Timothy grows up not persecuting the church, but he grows up. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read that he has Eunice and Lois, a faithful mother and grandmother that pray for him and pave the way that when Paul comes on his first missionary journey, that Timothy would become a protege of Paul. He would become a follower of Jesus. So he's a son in the faith. He's a co-laborer with Paul. He's a partner in the gospel. And there's times where we wonder, do I need to have a Saul to Paul kind of testimony? Or is it okay to have a Timothy testimony? There are times where I will hear people say, you know, I, I was saved at an early age and there wasn't this dramatic conversion experience where I was going down this Damascus road and God had to, gave me a vision. And, and there can be times where, where we're insecure with the ordinary nature Of our testimony. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, it it takes as much of the blood of Jesus Christ to save a a sinful seven-year-old as it does a 27-year-old or a 37-year-old or a 47-year-old that's been running from God for decades. And the beauty of the testimony is that so many people in this very sanctuary have, have, have Lois's and Eunice's to be able to think back on faithful moms and dads on their knees paving the way through faithful example of preaching the gospel and living out a a life before their children and before their grandchildren of the difference that the gospel makes. And the Holy Spirit uses that faithful witness in Timothy's life of his mother and his grandmother on their knees in prayer and saves him and saves others in this very sanctuary in the same way. But we don't, we don't compare testimonies, thinking one is better than the other, we all know that God, in the power of his Holy Spirit, can draw us to him, and he does it in a myriad of ways. Whether it's a Paul journey or a Timothy journey, we're reminded of the power of the gospel to change our lives. As we ask the question, who wrote this letter? It's not the only question we need to ask, though. Notice in this uh, letter that we have to address who Paul and Timothy, who are they writing to here? And when we answer that question, we are reminded of the power of the gospel to unite our lives. Notice again in Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that word is doulos, it means slave, it can be translated this as Paul and Timothy, they're mastered by Jesus, they answer to Jesus. They're writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Let's take these phrases one by one. To all the saints, if we're not careful, we're going to misinterpret what the word saints means. It means to be set apart. We're set apart in Christ Jesus. If we're not careful, we're, we're going to hear this word saints, and we're going to think it's only the super holy. We're, we're going to think it's Joan of Arc. That's who a saint is. We're going to think it's Mother Teresa. That's who a saint is. We're going to think it's St. Augustine or St. Aquinas. But notice this word is to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And I can assure you that the saints were not first ballot Christian hall of faith participants. That's not what Paul is talking about. But they are to all the saints, to all those who are set apart because they're in Christ Jesus. They're set apart because they're in Christ. Not because they're morally perfect. What we're going to discover is is that there's discord in the church at Philippi. We'll get there in chapter 4 where Paul has to say, you know Judea and you know Seneca, allow them, encourage them to get along because they've been fighting. Judea and Seneca are in all of the saints here. And you and I, we are part of the set apart because we're in Christ Jesus, not because we're morally perfect, not because there are halos over us. No, there is the power of the Holy Spirit that sets us apart because we are in him. Now, they were in a particular place to all the saints in Philippi. This is not a circular letter that's going to go to Sardis. This is not a letter that's then going to go to Rome. This is not a letter that then is going to go to the churches in Galatia. It is a letter to a specific people at a specific time in that place and that time is Philippi. It was a significant city. If you're reading Shakespeare's Julius Caesar it intersects with the recipients of this letter about 70 years before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus there was Philippi ended up being was the equivalent of Gettysburg to us you have Anthony Anthony and Octavian who who fight against uh, Brutus and Cassius the assassins of Julius Caesar you know where they do it right here at Philippi It was significant because it was close to the Aegean Sea. It's significant because it's on the way of what was called the Via Ignatia. That was the interstate system quote unquote that got you from Rome to the east. It was rich in gold. It was rich in springs. It was closer to a New Orleans and a San Francisco. It was a place where cultures met. It was a place where people were coming and going. Commerce, transportation. All of this is happening here. It is definitely not a one stop sign type of town. This is where Paul goes to. And he goes there because he has a missionary strategy to go to significant places with big populations where people are coming in and out. And their strategy was to show up in the synagogue. They show up in Acts chapter 16. I encourage you this afternoon or this week, to go back to Acts chapter 16 and read the history of the, of the early members of the church at Philippi here. It, it's, I never tire of it. It's one of the, to me, it's, it's one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole book of Acts. It goes a little like this. They show up. There's no synagogue. So they find by the river some women who are god fears. That means that they're, they're worshiping the God of the Old Testament, the God that they have heard of. But there, there's not enough Jewish men in the city to have a synagogue. So they go to the river and they're praying. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they show up. They preach the gospel. The first convert is Lydia, wealthy merchant, has a home there. The church is planted in her home. They walk through the town of Philippi. There's a demon-possessed young slave girl. Her masters rule over her, and because she's demon-possessed, she has this unique ability to be able to tell the future, and so they make money off of her in in this sort of uh, horrendous way here, and she's abused. She has no freedom, and so she sees Paul and Silas and says, these are servants of the Most High God that are coming to tell you how to be saved. And she taunts them. She follows them wherever they go. She is right behind them, calling out to everyone else here. These are servants of the Most High God, telling you how to be saved. Paul turns around, casts the demon out of her. She is free in the name of Jesus. But guess what? There are a lot of people who are not happy about this, especially her masters. Because their way to make money has now been eliminated because she is had this demon exercised from her, they take Paul, they take Silas before the magistrates, they strip them, they beat them, they flog them, they throw them into prison, not just any uh, cell in prison, but the inner, most dingiest and darkest of the inner cell in this place in Philippi. And then we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, what Paul and Silas are doing at midnight. What would you be doing at midnight? If, if you've just been beaten for proclaiming the gospel, if you've just been in prison, you, you might be like what I would feel. I, I feel in that moment I might uh, be threatened to despair. I might hold my, my fist up to God and say, I've done this for you, and, and this is what I've gotten in return. I, I've tried to be faithful to your mission, and you've left me and you've abandoned me, but that's not what we read. Luke tells us and. Verse 25 of Acts 16, that at midnight, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God. That they're praising God from the pits. They're praising God from the prison. We're going to come back to this theme. But if you think your joy is found in all of your circumstances going your way, you've misunderstood the source of joy. The Christian gospel is this powerful countercultural message that when everything from a human perspective is going wrongly, and, and it seems as if nothing is going the way that you thought it should, that in that moment you can sing hymns to God because you know that Christ is in the midst of whatever your circumstances are. You know that there is one who is above and beyond your circumstances. Paul knew this, Silas knew this, and they're singing praises to God. All the prisoners hear this, and God decides in his sovereignty to break them out of jail. Now, how does he do that? Acts chapter 16 tells us he sends an earthquake. Paul and Silas are set free out of the bondage there in Philippi. There's a Roman jailer who is before them who is so terrified. He's going to lose his job, and he's most likely in his mind going to lose his life. So in that moment, he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul preaches the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Not only you, but go back to your household and, and preach the gospel to them, and all of your household be saved too. So many of you know, you've grown up in the church, you've known the church culture enough. You remember the company Olin Mills? Olin Mills was this photography company they would come into churches, and they would take pictorial directories and all these pictures. And so 2,000 years ago, Olin Mills is is going around, and they call Lydia, and they say, hey, Lydia, it's time for us to do a pictorial directory. And she says, oh, come over to my house. Let's take some pictures. They have the the first church at Philippi, and they've got the pictorial directory, and there's this wealthy merchant, Lydia, on the front page, and there's this this demon-possessed slave girl on the front page, and here's this Roman jailer, on the front page and all of his household here. you got the deacons. you got the overseers. I want you just to see how disparate this pictorial directory is. I mean, you've got people from different socioeconomic classes, You've got people from different religious backgrounds. You've got people from from different perspectives and professions. You've got one and this young slave girl who has been abused and harassed and taken advantage of. And you have this woman who is this successful, wealthy merchant. You've got all of these cultures clashing. There's nothing that holds them together. Yet, Paul writes to them all, why? Because what, from a human standpoint, separates them and pushes them apart falls in the background to what unifies them, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to bring people together? Do you believe that there is something that is beyond our, our, our political opinions and our p- opinions about controversial issues that, that seek to, to bring disunity all around us to you, is there something that, that rises above this discord and this disunity? Is there something that can unite us even when we don't see eye to eye on how to cross this T and how to dot this I and what's going on right now and what this means for two weeks from now? Is there something that is far beyond this cultural moment that brings us together? Paul knew that there was. He had seen it with his own eyes. The church at Philippi. Do you believe power of the gospel to unite our lives? Do you believe in the power of the gospel to change our lives? And finally, last question, as we think about this, this message this morning that Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, do you believe in the power of the gospel to redeem our lives? We only get to verse 2. I meant for us to get further this morning. My my goal is to get to verse 8. Somehow, that didn't happen in the moment. Uh, We have miserably failed. There's no we to it. I have miserably failed to get us further along. But I want us to not miss the richness of this. In these Greco-Roman letters here, you've got a standard greeting. Corrine is is really the the original language of the New Testament. It's the word, and it just could be translated greetings. sort of a throwaway line how are you doing what's going on i hope all is well you go on with the letter paul he doesn't go in that common greeting he actually changes the greeting that all of these letters would have had and he puts these theologically rich words grace and peace charis and shalom he wants, from the very outset of the letter, to get what the thesis is, the main point right before us, so we can swim in it. That grace and peace, he is calling for the, the church at Philippi to experience, but it's not just grace and peace, but rather it is grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Stanley, the former pastor at First Baptist Atlanta, said it well when he said that grace and peace are twin sisters. Grace being the firstborn, where grace abounds, peace thrives. Where grace is stunted, peace shrivels. You can't have peace with God unless you've experienced the free gift of God's grace through his son, Jesus. I hope you know this, that what sets Christianity apart is that we believe that there is nothing, there is nothing that we can do to earn the forgiveness of God we can't merit this, we can't earn this, we're not good enough to attain this, and God knows this, and we ultimately know this, but yet through his grace, his undeserved and unmerited favor, he gives us not what we deserve, which is his wrath and his judgment, but he gives us what we do not deserve, forgiveness. How? Through his son Jesus. And when we experience that grace, we can then have peace with the holy God. I hope you know this. Yesterday morning, I took my youngest son and two of his buddies to a baseball card show. I've not ever done that before, and so I heard about this, and back in my day when I was his age, I was uh, like a lot of guys growing up. I was really into baseball cards. I thought going to the Chevron, I could get those upper deck baseball cards, and I could get the 1989 King Griffey Jr., and I could retire at the age of 25 if I pulled that out of a pack. I was so excited. I was so into it. I had binders and binders, and, and all of that's gone, and so many of you know there's sort of like this renaissance of baseball cards that have come up, and so some of my boys, and I have to admit a little bit of me, a lot of me has gotten back into that. So Danielle was laughing I don't know, she said, who is more excited about going to this baseball card show, your children or you? And so uh, I had a great time. We went to this place. It was this big gym and all these baseball card dealers, uh, my son and his two buddies. They bring their binders. They've got their money in their pockets. I've got some money. We're going to go buy some baseball cards. We come to this back corner. This guy is selling some cards. He says to our boys, there's a lot of people my age and older there, and then he, being a fourth grader and his two friends that are fourth graders, they've got their jerseys on. They've got their hats on. So he calls them over. He says, guys, look here at this box. Anything you find in this box Tell me. So they begin to pick it out, and they find these cards. It's like a Babe Ruth card—not an old Babe Ruth card, but a new Babe Ruth card, a Ty Cobb card. They're able to find a Dwight Gooden card, a Strawberry cards. They're able to look, and they're like, "Oh, wow, wow, wow!" Looking for Braves cards, looking for Cubs cards. They line them up, hundreds of cards. He looks at them, and my son asks, "How much will all this cost?" And he says, "They're free." And he didn't quite understand how to take that. I didn't either. He asked, Well, are you sure? Really? No, he said, Anything out of this box you can take home for free. He was really nice, and it was a great experience. These boys came back with hundreds of cards that they didn't pay anything for, and they thought they had won the lottery. We're driving back to our house. I hear them talking in the back, and they're comparing the cars, and they're saying, How much do you think we can go on eBay and make off of these cars here? <laughs> I think I've got $50 worth of cards. And another one said, I think I've got $100 worth of cards. I mean, I've got a Babe Ruth card here. I've got a Ty Cobb card here. And then they begin to, to do the logic here. And they're like, well, he gave us all of these cards for free. And I had to tell them, I don't know guys if they're really worth much of anything. Because if you went back to that same really nice guy, that same really nice dealer, who really kindly gave them all these cards, he had another section at his stand. Another section of really rare, really unique, one-of-a-kind, in these slabs, Covered over with rookie cards and, and cards that, that you can't just find in any and every pack here. And those cards he did not give for free. Why? Because they were his prize possession. Don't misunderstand my point here. God the Father has looked at his prize possession and has given to each and every one of us who return to him by faith. He has given everything to us and he gives it to us free of charge. Do you know this? That God the Father has not held his best from you, but he gives what is wholly unique, one of a kind, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his Son to each and every one of us who by faith would say yes. And how much does it cost? free of charge, to each and every one of us. How much did it cost for him? Everything. This, this is grace. And through his grace, we receive his peace. Let us pray.